You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this very important and timely podcast episode to discuss what healthcare professionals need to know about the COVID-19 vaccine and their patients. And I have to say, being a practitioner myself, it comes up on every single visit. Patients are asking about the vaccine, and so this is particularly timely. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Michael Angaroni, who is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease, and Department of Medical Education at the Feinberg School of Medicine and Northwestern University in Chicago. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Ken. So I'm really happy to be here. So I wanted to ask you first about COVID-19 as an infection. And, and you know, obviously, we're all exposed to viruses. We get our flu vaccines. What makes COVID-19 different? than sort of the other viruses we're exposed to? And, and in particular, what causes the illness? Is it the virus? Is it the immune response? Is it both? Fill us in on that, if you would. Yeah, that's a great question. So COVID is caused by the SARS coronavirus 2. So SARS meaning severe acute respiratory syndrome. And this virus is a unique virus. It's a coronavirus. And it's novel in that typically it was infecting mammals, bats, pangolins, other small mammals. And for whatever reason, it has jumped into humans. And so now it's affecting us. It's similar to the SARS-1, so from the early 2000s that many of your listeners may have remembered. The major difference is it's more infectious. So it can spread much easier than the SARS-1 virus. This virus binds to receptors that are in our respiratory tract and also in our endothelium inside of our blood vessels. And so that's probably what's driving a lot of the more severe infections that individuals are getting from this. And as you mentioned, how much of this is the virus versus the inflammatory or our immune system response? And that's what we're really trying to figure out as the pandemic progresses. There's definitely a portion of it that is driven by the virus itself. And that's the typical upper respiratory symptoms that we get, the runny nose, the sore throat, the cough. As the virus progresses in certain individuals, you get more of an inflammatory response in the lungs. And that's what leads to the ARDS that develops. So the more severe pneumonia, severe hypoxia. The virus also triggers immune responses systemically, and that's what we think leads to more of that inflammatory response where people are actually developing septic shock or shock-like syndromes from the virus. And this makes it unique from all those other respiratory viruses that you had mentioned, influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, which often just stay within the respiratory tract itself. This virus gets out of the respiratory tract and then triggers that immune response response that really causes this hyperinflammation. And so early on, the virus is 
doing its job and that's what's making us sick, that respiratory illness. Later on, so probably into week two or week three in certain individuals, you get more of that inflammatory response. Whatever the virus is doing that's triggering our immune system is causing us to get sick. And that's what we're focusing on both of those as we try to treat and manage this virus. So as we think about, you know, patients either who've had cancer and have finished treatment or patients who are actively undergoing treatment, what are you finding in terms of their level of uh, symptomatic infection as compared to the general population? And I guess I'd love your insight also into, again, what are the mechanisms, how either our patients are the same or that they're different than everyone else? Yeah. And our personal experience, so my personal experience, I take care of a lot of uh, our hematologic and stem cell recipients here at Northwestern. And we've seen a slightly higher incidence of infection and need for hospitalization in that patient population. When we look at kind of the worldwide pandemic and what's been seen early on in China, they recognize probably a two or threefold incidence of infection in individuals who had malignancies, whether prior or active malignancies. More recently, there's been some data from uh, the UK, as well as Memorial Sloan Kettering, that kind of mirrors that, that our patients with malignant conditions, whether active or past, seem to be at a higher risk of developing infection. When we look at their risk or how their infection presents, the symptoms are pretty much the same. So the respiratory disease of the fatigue, the fevers, the cough, the shortness of breath, the anosmia discusia, so losing smell and taste. The big difference starts to come in the individuals that present with more severe illness. And we've been seeing in our malignancy patients, they tend to present more with the hypoxia or evidence of pneumonia based on chest X-ray or CAT scan, and even progressing to the more critical illness, needing ICU care, mechanical ventilation. Why that's occurring we don't really know. So when we think of other respiratory viruses, influenza, for example, we know patients with active cancer, especially heme malignancies, or who are on chemotherapy, that's gonna change their immune response, and they are at higher risk for more severe illness. And so it may just be a factor of the chemotherapy, the malignancy itself, is making our patients more vulnerable to that more severe disease. What has been an interesting fact that we're still working this out is, is the degree of immune suppression, for example, in a stem cell recipient or someone who's on prednisone or steroids as part of their chemotherapy or some of these newer antibodies that blunt some of the immune responses, are they actually at less of a risk for more severe infection? And there's small studies that have actually shown that to be true, that some patients who are on steroids or who are on bercitinib, for example, may be at less of a risk for severe infection. In fact, that's what kind of drove us to look at bercitinib as one of the modalities to treat uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 in patients as well. So with that in mind, I've got to ask you, and I'm showing my own ignorance here, tell us about bercitinib, if you would. 
So baricitinib, uh, which is a Janus kinase inhibitor, some individuals who have uh, cancer, uh, different malignancies, especially heme malignancies, that may be part of their chemotherapy regimen or patients who've received stem cell transplants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for, it was noticed, you know, with this inflammatory syndrome, can we tamp that down? And there's been the data from England from the recovery trial that dexamethasone gives a mortality benefit, especially for people who have this inflammatory syndrome. So in the U.S., in our adaptive COVID treatment trial, uh, the second version, so the ACT2, patients were randomized to remdesivir plus baricitinib or remdesivir plus placebo. And what was found were those individuals that got remdesivir, which is an antiviral to treat SARS-CoV-2, who were also given baricitinib, had a quicker time to recovery. So about seven days to recovery, earlier discharge compared to patients who received remdesivir alone. And the thought is, the hypothesis is that it helped tamp down some of that inflammation that's going on with kind of the later stage of uh, COVID that occurs in some individuals. So I have to say, it's interesting. It's, I mean, it sounds fairly nuanced that some degree of immunosuppression may be therapeutic, and yet too much immunosuppression as part of therapy, I guess, may result in our patients being more likely to get seriously ill. Is that a reasonable summary? Yes, yes, I really agree with that. And it's one of these kind of paradoxes that's somewhat confounding, that individuals who are a little bit immune suppressed, it might help them, but it also at the same time might make them sicker. And it's unclear why. One fact might be there's just more virus in certain individuals that are on those immune suppressants, and that ultimately makes them sicker as they progress through their illness. So I wanted to ask you about the vaccine itself. There's a lot of discussion about mRNA vaccines. And so I'd love it if you would teach us about this vaccine. How is it different from others? What are mRNA vaccines? How was it that we were able to get a vaccine so quickly? What technology and sort of advances made that possible? Yeah, I think the mRNA vaccines that we have for SARS-CoV-2 are truly, I think, a leap forward in vaccinology and and vaccine technology. So the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine and the Moderna mRNA vaccines are the two FDA-approved vaccines here in the U.S. There's just been announcement of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's a different platform using a, a virus vector. But the mRNA vaccines, the way that they work is by utilizing the genetic code of the virus and finding the RNA transcript for the spike protein for the SARS coronavirus 2, we can take that RNA transcript and make a messenger RNA. So that's the RNA that is going to be translated into a protein in the cell. So in our cell, that's going to be made into the spike protein. And that's how the virus is going to operate. And so what Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna have done is isolated that messenger RNA, packaged it within a lipid packaging device delivery system. And so when we get the vaccine, that lipid packaging device gets into our cells, releases the messenger RNA, and that messenger RNA utilizing our genetic machinery gets translated into a protein, gets translated into the spike protein, and that spike protein gets put onto the surface of our cells. 
So our immune system, which surveys our cells all the time, is going to see that, recognize it as foreign, and is going to develop an, an immune response, i.e. develop antibodies against that spike protein. So we're, in essence, taking a portion of the virus, the genetic material of the virus, using that to kind of allow our cells to make those proteins and become machines for making the protein that makes the antibody. And so we get this really robust antibody response. And we've seen from the efficacy data from the clinical trials for the Pfizer Moderna, they're both 94, 95% efficacious when it comes to preventing COVID. These vaccines, and I think the reason why they've become approved and we have these vaccines so quickly on the one hand, we have the methodology for the Project Warp Speed that was developed to get these vaccines through their phase one, phase two, phase three trials very quickly. So combining phase two and phase three trials instead of doing them independently, trying to enroll patients very rapidly. So that's the first component. The second component and more important one is the technology. So the technology, I think when we hear about it, we think, well, this came out of nowhere. And it's interesting that it's technology that researchers have been looking at for well over 20 years for not just vaccines, but for cancer therapies, ways to identify right. other proteins or have our body make other proteins. In fact, some of the SARS-1 and Ebola virus vaccines that were looked at early on were based on this mRNA technology. And so I think it's a new technology, but something that's been there for a while. And the pandemic and the need for a rapid vaccine and the rapid expansion of a vaccine was the perfect timing for this technology to really get pushed up to the front evaluated, found to work, and found to be efficacious. And now we have two very efficacious mRNA vaccines. So how are the two different? And along the same lines, are the differences meaningful in terms of, again, our patients? Will our patients tend to benefit more from one or the other, or are they, they interchangeable in that way? Yeah, that's a great question because they're two vaccines from two different companies on two new platforms. I don't know a lot of the proprietary ins and outs of the vaccines, but when we look at the vaccines at the basic level, they're pretty similar. So they're the mRNA that has the message of the spike protein, and they're encapsulated within a delivery system. And that delivery system might be different between the Moderna and Pfizer, so I don't really know. But they're essentially the same vaccine. Their efficacy is very similar, 94 95%. Mm -hmm. Biggest differences are with dosing. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, you get the first dose and second dose 21 days later. The Moderna's first dose and second dose 28 days later. They both are somewhat reactogenic, meaning they cause some immune reactivity within us. A lot of people will experience fever, injection site pain, body aches, fatigue mm -hmm. after the vaccine, either the first or the second dose. But for all intents and purposes, they're pretty similar vaccines. For our patients, for patients with malignancy, whether active or prior on chemotherapy or not on chemotherapy, we don't have a lot of data for how these vaccines are going to work and what are going to be some of the potentially unique reactions that our patients are going to have. People are working on seeing what those are, and I'm sure there's going to be trials and studies specifically looking at patients with malignancy. 
What we're recommending is that we still vaccinate everyone. So recommendations from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network are really promoting that all patients with malignancies should be vaccinated. We know we don't know if there's going to be a difference in efficacy or a difference in side effects, but we still are promoting that everyone get vaccinated. So a real specific question on that, because I've been asked this a few times, patients who've had either uh, an allo or an auto uh, stem cell transplant, should they too get vaccinated? Yes. So neither of these vaccines are live vaccines. They're mRNA component vaccines. And so uh, recipients of stem cell transplants should get vaccinated because of the immune suppression, especially with allogeneic uh, vaccine recipients, but also with autologous and those who've gotten cellular therapy with CAR T-cell or other cellular therapies. We're recommending that the vaccine be delayed for three months post that treatment. So post the stem cell, post the cellular therapy, just to give the immune system some time to recover. Right. We don't have data for that. A lot of that is based off of how we know stem cell recipients will react to other vaccines like influenza, for example. If we give it in the middle of the stem cell or a month post stem cell, we know that patients are not going to respond as well. So that's why for stem cell recipients, we're saying delay until at least three months post the stem cell. So in a sense, I mean, patients, let's say again, stem cell patients perhaps may not mount as robust a response, but on the other hand, it sounds like they also will not harm them getting the vaccine. Correct. And I think that's the way that we're looking at it is that the vaccine has not demonstrated any harm. It's not a live vaccine. And so we want to give our patients the best chance to be protected that they can. And we want to give them the vaccine. We just want to make sure that they're going to respond. So that's where there's this recommendation to wait three months post stem cell or cellular therapy. I wanted to ask, you know, talking even more about the vaccine, some of the questions that I've heard asked, including my own family, does a person's symptoms after the vaccine side effects correlate with response? From what we know, it doesn't correlate. So if you have the fever after the first dose versus having it after the second dose, or you don't have any adverse or reactogenic symptoms after either dose, we do not think that it correlates with the response. If that were the case, looking at the trials, at least for the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech, the rate of those adverse effects would have been 95% or more, uh, just given the degree of protection. And so I think we're all human. And so that's one of the things that we, in our mind, I think, build up is that, you know, oh, I got a, a fever for two days after my second dose. I'm super protected. And, and I just don't think we know that. And I've had the same thing asked me from patients and, and friends and family that have gotten or will be getting the vaccine. You know, if I don't, if I have a reaction after the first dose, that means that I had coronavirus a couple of months ago. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you about myths because we are all human. And so there's a lot of, I think, fears about vaccines or fears about this vaccine that people either ask or don't ask, but think about what are some of the concerns that patients have voiced to you and which are myths, which are potentially true? For example, can you get coronavirus from the vaccine? Can you develop other diseases from the vaccine? Can you get cancer from the vaccine? What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, and I hear those questions all the time uh, with relation to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine and other vaccines. And I've heard those that you mentioned, Ken. So can this cause cancer? Am I going to get coronavirus? Is the protein going to be in my cells forever? And so when I do get coronavirus, I'm going to get sicker. The vaccine was pushed through too quickly and it's not as protective as what people say. You know, the reactions that we're hearing are far worse than what's being reported, among others. Mm -hmm. And I would say all of those are myths. I think the vaccine is not going to give you coronavirus. As I mentioned, it's a chunk of messenger RNA that causes our cells to make the spike protein. So we're not going to get the virus from the vaccine at all. It doesn't have live virus. There's not even a virus carrier to it. It is not going to give us cancer. From what we know, these RNA segments and these proteins, our body gets rid of them over time. How quickly that occurs, I don't know, but over time, our body gets rid of them. Just like with any vaccine, when we have those proteins floating around in our blood, our body is very good at getting rid of those. In terms of the quickness with which the vaccine was approved, as I mentioned, it's a technology that's been around for far longer than I think most people have realized. And it was just the fact that we had this pandemic that really pushed this type of vaccine platform through and to get approval. And for the adverse events in the trial, there were people that had reactive events. And, you know, I think it's around 50% or more that had arm pain and, and the fatigue and the fevers, et cetera. One thing that we did notice as we were giving the vaccine to healthcare workers was this allergic reaction issue with the vaccine. So the anaphylaxis that was occurring that we heard reports about. And we expected reactions like that to this vaccine, just like there are to other vaccines. We we just don't know how certain people are going to react to these components that we're giving them, and people are going to have allergic reactions. As we start looking at those reactions, as we've given more and more and more doses of the vaccine, and there's been millions of doses that have been given, that rate of anaphylaxis or allergic reaction is about what we would expect with influenza vaccine or the tetanus vaccine or the hepatitis B vaccine. So it's not higher than what we would have expected with other vaccines as we give more people the vaccines. And so I've been telling my patients and family and friends and other people that I talked to about the vaccines is that from everything we know, they're safe, they're effective, they're not going to cause you to get coronavirus. There's not going to be any downstream effects from the vaccine as far as we know. And I tell people, I've gotten the vaccine. I've gotten both of my doses. After the first dose, didn't have anything. After the second dose, I had the myalgias and headache and arm pain and a little bit of lymphadenopathy in the left arm where I got the vaccine. But within 24 hours, that was gone and I felt well. And so I try to use that as my own personal experience to let them know that I got the vaccine. And I know now a lot of people that got the vaccine and we've all done really well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that, you know, it's an important and a meaningful endorsement. And I do share as well. I've, I've had the vaccine. I had the actually opposite effect of you. I had a reaction the first time and not the second. So it is uh, one day maybe we'll understand some of this. Let me ask you about re- resuming activities and life after being vaccinated. So, you know, I think obviously people are still are masking and still being cautious. 
what are your recommendations in terms of uh, can people go shopping? Can people in general, and again, our patients, is it okay to go to the store with the mask and hand washing? How might our lives be different after being vaccinated? That's the big money question. How are our lives going to change once we get the vaccine and once we start hitting different immune thresholds within the communities? For right now, we're still being cautious. So as people get the vaccines or even natural infection from SARS-CoV-2, we're really saying still maintain wearing masks, washing hands, distancing. If you're going to gather with people, make sure it's people that you know, if you have kind of a circle of people that you gather with, and those gatherings are small and, and preferably outdoors. As we start to get these vaccines, and as we learn more about what's going on in the real world, I think we're going to start to have more comfort with, especially our patients who are compromised because of their malignancy saying, it's okay for you to go to the grocery store with your family member to go shopping as long as you're wearing a mask and making sure that you're washing your hands or keeping your hands clean. And so I think we're going to start to be more comfortable with that. In fact, there's now data that has just been published out of Israel that showed how efficacious the vaccine is. And they looked at over 500,000 people that had the vaccine, compare them to 500,000 people who did not. And the vaccine was not only efficacious after the second dose, well over 90% for preventing COVID and hospitalization, but the interesting thing was it was 92% successful at preventing infection with SARS-CoV-2. And that's been the thing that you know we've all been talking about with this vaccine. Is it going to prevent infection? Not that we ever think of it with other vaccines. And my personal opinion was, yes, it's going to prevent infection. But now we're starting to get mm -hmm. data to that effect. And so as we start getting more of that data, as we start getting more people vaccinated, and this is where we really have to be vigilant as a healthcare community of making sure that we let our patients know they can get the vaccine, making sure that vaccine's available, and really telling them that it's safe, effective, and worthwhile getting. As we get more of those patients vaccinated and more people in the community vaccinated, that's when we can start, I think, really loosening up some of the restrictions that we're putting down. I would say for our patients with cancer, once they get the vaccine, that's when you know they can start, especially if their family members or caretakers are also getting vaccinated, that's when they can start uh, thinking about you know doing things like going to the grocery store. Again, wearing a mask and washing hands and, and trying to stay safe, but doing it with a little bit less of a worry than they are right now. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about family members, caregivers, and for that matter, even uh, medical professionals taking care of patients. After being vaccinated, are all of the above, including ourselves, less likely to be asymptomatic carriers? And, and maybe that's what you were addressing a couple minutes ago, but I really wanted to clarify that. Yeah, you know, that's been the big question with these vaccines. So the trials, the way that they looked for efficacy was prevention of COVID, meaning coronavirus infectious disease. So being symptomatic and then getting tested and found to be positive. There wasn't as much of the asymptomatic or just testing to see who turned positive with the PCR. The Israeli study, and there's a little bit of this in a preprint from the Mayo Clinic experience, 
shows that the vaccines also prevent positivity even when people are asymptomatic. So people just getting tested for SARS-CoV-2. And so I think that's really beneficial for our patients when they know that their healthcare provider and the healthcare team that they're working with has been vaccinated. I think then it starts making us really think about, and I'm a huge proponent of this, that we should be vaccinating the caregivers for our vulnerable patients. So our patients who do have malignancies that are on chemotherapy, they probably have someone who's driving them to the chemotherapy appointments Mm -hmm. or their radiology or that's going to the store or living with them. And I think those individuals should get vaccinated as well and almost be considered an essential healthcare provider. And I think we should be looking at how can we get those individuals vaccinated sooner than the tier that they would be in. Because some of those caregivers may be young and otherwise healthy. And so I really think we should also look at those as well, uh, those individuals as well, and how can we get them vaccinated sooner than later? Because again, it starts creating that circle. It starts creating that circle of immunization uh, and immunity. Well, let me ask you, it may prove to be a very difficult question or an easy question. We as healthcare providers, I think pretty uh, uniformly need to get a flu vaccine every year. And if you don't get a flu vaccine, you can't see patients. Should COVID vaccine be mandatory for healthcare providers? That's a hugely loaded question. I thought so. Um, I'm sorry. Just your opinion. I think my opinion is that we as healthcare providers should be protecting our patients the best way that we can. And part of that is getting vaccinated against uh, SARS-CoV-2, just like influenza. And if we think about it, this is probably getting vaccinated and protecting our patients against SARS-CoV-2 is even more important than influenza at this point in time. That may change, but I think right now I favor that all healthcare providers should be vaccinated against uh, SARS-CoV-2 so that we can really... One, I think we provide protection for our patients, but then two, it puts us in the position of being leaders and leading by example. And that goes for whether you're a physician, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a PA, a phlebotomist, uh, x-ray tech, etc. All of us getting vaccinated and then telling our patients and our family members and, and people in the general public that we meet that we got vaccinated we did well with the vaccine and we're protecting everyone else and we want you to do the same, I think we we end up leading by example. Yeah, and it's a powerful example. I want to ask you, and really just sort of thinking about the future and this technology, you were sharing that this has been years or maybe even longer in development, mRNA technology. How might it just, you know, what you're reading and thinking about, but how might it actually have other implications in other illnesses such as cancer? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this technology, I think, is potentially going to change the way we deal with or look at a lot of different diseases. So with the mRNA technology, there have been and there are researchers looking at cancer chemotherapeutics. So can we make ourselves translate these mRNA chunks and make proteins that are specific to the cancer that our patient has or to a specific group of cancers that turn on the immune system to activate against that cancer? Can we use this mRNA to manufacture protein drugs that can start 
treating the cancer within ourselves. So when you inject the mRNA. And so there is a lot of researchers and research looking at the other applications of these mRNA, as well as with other vaccines and with other illnesses. There's looks at, can we do this for influenza so we can make a very adaptable, but almost near universal influenza vaccine? Can we make a vaccine or potentially a therapeutic for HIV? And so there's a lot of different avenues that are being looked at with this technology. And I think it's going to be one that we're going to see advancing more throughout the next few years or decades uh, and becoming more implanted into clinical therapy, just like CAR T cells kind of change the way that we, we treat many different cancers. So I'd say very exciting, very exciting to think about. Michael, let me ask you about people that have had COVID and recovered, should they get vaccinated? Yes, the short answer. So everyone should get vaccinated, even those who've had COVID. Right now, we're saying that people should wait until they have that 10 days uh, past the symptom onset. They have no fever. Their symptoms are improving before they get the vaccine. So in general, most people should wait at least two weeks until getting the vaccine. If the vaccine is scarce or limited, you may have to wait a little bit longer depending on where you're getting the vaccine. But everyone should get vaccinated, even if you've had COVID in the past, no matter when you had it. Yeah, thank you. And that's an important message. You know, along those lines, what message would you like to send to, again, our patients, their caregivers, medical caregivers as well? So I think the biggest message is get vaccinated. That's the best thing that we can do for each other, for our patients, for the people that we're caring for. For our patients with malignancies and cancers, they should get vaccinated. There's differences in timing of the vaccine. If you've had a stem cell transplant or chemotherapy and have neutropenia, we obviously want to wait for those to recover or wait beyond three months from the transplant if you had a transplant. But everyone with a malignancy should get vaccinated. I advocate for all the caregivers. So anyone at home, anyone who's taking care of our patients with malignancy should be vaccinated as well. And we should be you know, putting plans in place for how do we get those individuals vaccinated. And then most importantly, all of us who are taking care of those patients at whatever level, we should also be getting vaccinated for our patients as well. Thank you. I think that's such an important message and also so well said. Well, I have to say this has been such an interesting uh, discussion and I've learned a lot. And I want to thank Dr. Michael Angaroni, who again is an associate professor at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation and I'm happy to give information to all your listeners. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this very informative and very timely podcast. For more information on how LLS is supporting blood cancer patients during COVID-19 pandemic, or for any questions and to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org CE. And again, thank you for joining us for this important conversation and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.